Friends, we're going to get into chapter 5 next week, and Lord willing, wrap up in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to wrap up chapter 4 this week, looking at verses 13 through 21. I've entitled the sermon, Three Ways to Know We Have a Relationship with God. And that could really summarize the, the whole point of John's letter. I mean, he's essentially giving us, in a, uh, a practical, very small section here this morning, the larger point of his letter, which is how we can know that we have a relationship with God. But he uses those words in verse 13 when he says, by this, in other words, what he's just said and what he's going to say, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. So his point this morning is he wants us to know that we abide in him and that he abides in us. In other words, that we have a relationship with God. Now, it's important to say this up front. Every person has a relationship with God. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but every single person has a relationship with God. It's just not a saving one. Every single person is born in relationship to God and therefore is born into a relationship specifically with Adam, whereby Adam's record, his imperfect, sinful, broken record is given to us as well as the pollution of his sin infects our hearts and our souls. So we are born in a relationship with God, but it's not on good terms. That relationship with God is not on good terms. And so we have to be brought into a right relationship with God or a saving relationship with God. And John's going to tell us how we can know we have that kind of relationship in verses 13 through 21 this morning, that we might know that he abides in us and that we abide in him. It's the greatest reality in the entire world to know that the living God lives inside of you and that the living God, that you're in relationship with him in a union, in an abiding relationship. So that's the burden of John's letter, to make us know and to teach us to be sure and how to be sure that God abides in us. So let's look at the three ways to know we have a relationship with God in our text this morning. Here's the first one, first way. We are converted to Christ. We are converted to Christ. Now he says this in verses 13 through 15. We're going to look at these verses one at a time. Here's the the first sign of being converted to Christ. He says, we have received the Spirit of God. You see that in verse 13? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has been implanted, imparted into our lives bringing us into union with God. The union, the relationship that we have with God is a spiritual reality. It's that he actually gives his Holy Spirit to live within us, and that is the way in which we abide in him and he in us. See, it it might strike you that this is the way the Apostle John thinks about Christianity. It's a supernatural spirit thing. It is a union, a mystical, mutual indwelling of God in us and us in God and I don't think that's typically the way I really think about Christianity. I think of it as maybe, you know, a a religious system, a moral code, a way of life. But John envisions it as a reception of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we are in God and God is in us. This is the way Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of the previous century in England, put it. He said, what is the Christian life? What does it mean to be a Christian? Living as a Christian does not mean just being good and decent. 
So many people seem to think the essence of Christianity is to give up one or two particularly gross and obvious sins and come to a place of worship. But how unworthy and inadequate a view that is. Morality is essential, but God forbid that we should reduce this glorious thing and this glorious life to just a little decency and morality. Christianity means to be taken up into the life of God. End quote. That's the way John thinks about it. We are literally taken up into the life of God. God abides in us and we abide in him. And that's what converts us to Christ. Second thing that we can, way we know we're converted to Christ is in verse 14. Notice what John says, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. You know, you know how you saw that? You know how you came to testify that? You were given the Holy Spirit, right? So verse 13 Follow, or verse 14 follows verse 13. And the reason that you know the Son of God came from the Father is because the Holy Spirit taught you that. The Holy Spirit led you to embrace that truth. So John says, we have come, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So we not only receive the Spirit, but part of being converted is we also embrace and believe the apostles' testimony about who Jesus is. And so John says, we, we apostles, have seen and testified that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come from the Father, that God sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We've come to see that, and as believers, we have embraced that. That's what it means to be converted to Christ. So who is Jesus in this letter? Well, let me just summarize. We've talked a lot about Jesus over the course of the last several weeks, but here's how John describes him. Chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who was with God in the beginning and made manifest to us. According to chapter 1, verse 7, Christ died on the cross. He shed his blood to provide a just payment to God. Chapter 1, verse 9, in order to appease God's wrath and to serve as our advocate. Chapter, one verses, or chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, and chapter 4, verse 10. And through him, through his death and through his resurrection, we are made children of God, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We are freed from the power and penalty of sin and enabled by his spirit to live radically and sacrificially in love toward others. As we wait for and anticipate the hope of eternal life, which God has granted to us in Christ, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. So that's John's picture of the the, the testimony of the apostles regarding Jesus Christ. And we have believed that. We've received the Spirit. We believe the apostles' testimony. A third and final one, we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 15. We, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Remember he said in verse 13, this is how we know that God abides in us and that we abide in him. In other words, that we have a relationship. He's given us of his Spirit. We believe the apostles' testimony about Jesus, and we, along with them, confess something. So the Holy Spirit is bringing about a confession in our lives, and it's a confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And whoever does that, God abides in him, and he abides in God. So let me ask you a couple of questions on this first point. When you hear the testimony of Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus is the one sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world, does your heart readily confess that truth? Does your heart say, amen, that is truth. 
Do you gladly affirm the divine greatness of Jesus Christ and how worthy he is of trust and adoration and loyalty and obedience? And do you exalt and does your heart rejoice in the fact that Christ is the greatest thing of all? Well, if you do, God abides in you and you abide in God. That's what it means to be converted to Christ. It means that we have been given of the Spirit in such a way that we have been led to embrace the one whom the Father has sent to be the Savior of the world and to confess along with the apostles that he is, in fact, the Son of the living God. So that's the first sign. That's the first way we know we have a relationship with God. That's what it means to be converted to Christ. We receive the Spirit, we believe the apostles' testimony, and we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's a second way to know that we have a relationship with God. We are confident in Christ. Verses 16 through 18. So this conversion, this receiving of the Spirit and confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is meant to give us a sort of emotional ballast and spiritual resilience and confidence in our relationship with God. That it's a secure one. And that it's one that is destined to land us in his presence saved forever. So let's look at verses 16 through 18 as we talk about this point. We are confident in Christ. First of all, we're convinced of God's love, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So John says, we've come to know something experientially, really, that God is love. How do we know that? Because he sent his son to be the savior of the world, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the way God has demonstrated his love. But to know God's love and to rely on it means that you understand it with both your mind and your heart. Consequently, you depend on it. The bottom line, bedrock belief and truth of your life is this. God loves me. God loves me. The weight of your disobedience and the struggles with sin that you endure cannot cause God's love to waver or falter. He first loved us while we were sinners, so it does not make sense to think he would stop loving us because we are still sinners. To be sure... We can displease our Father and find ourselves chastised or disciplined in the same way an earthly father might discipline a child that he loves. But our subjective experience of his love, while that may lessen, the objective reality of his love does not lessen. God's love for us remains unchanged. It neither decreases nor increases. And how could it? He already loves you with every fiber of his being. That's why he sent his son to be your savior. That's what we considered last week. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, he didn't look at you and say, those people love me so much, I think I'm going to send my son for them. They deserve it. Look how much they love me. No, God said, 
look how much they don't love me. Now let me see, send my son to them so that they will be convinced of my great love for them. And so can you understand why John would say such a thing as we have come to know and rely on the love that God has for us? That's, that's just not even up for debate. That's not even going to enter into his mind. Does God love me? And John would say, what else does he have to do? I mean, what else does he have to say? What else, how else, what what does he have to prove to you? How arrogant of us to walk around with our heads sulking, acting like God doesn't love me. That's arrogance. Repent of that. Say, God, I'm sorry for my hard thoughts of you. I'm sorry for the ways I grieve you by failing to believe my father's love. And he will say to you, son, daughter, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. That confession doesn't change the fact that I love you. I want you to be confident in my love for you because I do love you with my whole heart. Think about it. Through Christ, these are the ways that God has manifested his love for us. Through Christ, we're dead to sin. We're spiritually alive. We're forgiven. We're declared righteous. We're God's possession. We're an heir of God. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're citizens of heaven. We're free from the law. We're crucified with Christ. We're free from the desires of the flesh. We're declared blameless and innocent. We're the light of the world. We're victorious over Satan. We're cleansed from sin. We're set free in Christ from the power of sin. We're secure in him. We're at peace with God and we're loved by God. I could give you texts for all that. We don't got time. It's in the New Testament. But those are all evidences of God's great love. And so John can say, listen, that should lead you to a degree of confidence before God that you're loved. How should this confidence supremely manifest itself? Well, in the day of judgment. Notice verses 17 and 18. By this, is, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, as you see here, John's referring specifically when he talks about confidence in God's love. He's referring specifically to the fear of God's final judgment and the final rejection that will accompany that judgment for those who have not trusted in Christ. But when we have understood God's perfect love, brothers and sisters, his unwavering love, and entered into that mutually loving relationship, there is no room for fear, John says. Fear has to do with punishment, and I believe your punishment has been taken. Remember, he's the propitiation for our sins, chapter 4, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 2. That means he is the sacrifice of wrath and satisfy his justice against our sin, chapter 1, verse 9. So now he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So fear has to do with punishment, but our punishment has been taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. So those of us who cower in fear before God, who suspect that he might reject us at any moment, we demonstrate a profound mistrust for God's love. And though we do not see how great the gift of the Son really is, that through his death all our sins have been forgiven and our status as God's children has been irrevocably, irrevocably secured, the Christian who truly understands God's love will crawl unafraid into God's lap. That's the vision that John wants us to have, that we would be rid of fear 
in our relationship with God. Now, there is a sense in which holy fear and reverence is always appropriate, but never punitive fear. It's the fear that should accompany a relationship with a father. Think about that kind of fear, which is almost in our minds like, wait, what kind of fear is that? It's a fatherly fear. It's a fatherly love and respect and joy and a sense of desire that I want to please the one who's loved me so much. Notice what John says. He says, as he is, this is the end of verse 17, as Jesus is, so also are we in the world. What does he mean by that? Well, in part, it means the way the Father treats us is the same way he does the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing gospel blessing to know that we are loved the way the Father loves the Son, that as adopted children of God, we are loved the way the begotten is loved, which is an amazing thing and should lead us to rest confidently in God's love for us. Now, I've just spent the last 10 minutes or so camping on the reality of confidence in God's love being rooted solely in the work of Christ and what he's done for us. And that is absolutely foundational. That is absolutely important. There is nothing that can overstate that. However, with that said, that is not John's only point of the way that we gain confidence in Christ. It's not like we only gain confidence by just thinking about God's love and thinking about the cross and thinking about all that he's done for us in Christ. That is huge. That is foundational. But that's not it. There are other things that are, have to be present in our life in response to that to contribute to greater confidence and assurance that we belong to God. Now, what are those things? So I want to take a few minutes here under this point about confidence in Christ to talk about that while our ultimate confidence must always be linked to Christ's obedience, we must not in any way use that as a way to lessen the role that our own obedience is to play in our assurance and confidence before God. Because it is. It's a, go- it's a gospel thing. So let's talk about that a little bit. Now, John uses this phrase, perfected love. Do you see that? Look at, look at verse 17 again. By this is love perfected with us. There is no, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So he uses this, and then keep on going, look at the end of verse 18, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. He uses this phrase perfect and perfected. What what does he mean by that? In this is love perfected in us. Well, look back at verse 12. This is not, this is our text last week. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So in the span of five or six verses, he uses this phrase four times. He's like obsessed with it. What is perfected love? Well, let me be clear here. It's not, per, it's not flawless love. Okay, perfected is not talking about an absolutely sinless, without flaw love. But it is the love of God that is expressing itself in love for him and love for others. I want you to see where he uses this phrase again. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. 
okay? So when John thinks about perfect love, he's not just thinking about God's perfect love for us. He's thinking about what is the goal that God's loving us has? What, what is God's loving us intended to accomplish in our lives, right? That's what perfected means, matured. It's, it has an, it has, it's a very hard Greek word to translate, which is why we just settle on perfected. But the idea is it's brought to a certain end. It's brought to a certain goal, okay? And the goal of God loving us is so that his love would be actualized in our lives and activated in such a way that we love him and that we love others, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, that we keep his commandments, that we obey him. All right, so how does this relate to the confidence for the day of judgment, as we've been talking about? Well, by putting God's love into action for other people, we gain confidence, greater confidence, for the day of judgment. Now, I want you to look again at 1 John chapter 3, and let's read verses 8 through 10. No, 18 through 20. Wrote the wrong text down. 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, John is very concerned that we not just let this gospel, you know, hit us and be like, oh, I don't have to do anything. See, this is a, this is a common way the gospel's misunderstood. I've met with people, I've counseled with people, I've shared the gospel with them, and they've acted like there's, no, there's nothing they have to do. There's no way they have to live. There's no way that the, that the gospel, receiving the gospel, impacts their life at all. I would share with them about the freeness of God's grace and how Christ has done it all for you so that all you have to do is try. And they're like, great, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take, okay, so what does it mean from here on out for you to believe that? I don't, I don't know. I guess you just believe it, right? It's like treating God like some get-out-of-hell-free card. Like, thanks God for the gift, slapping him and walking away. Do you, is that how you honor a giver? No. The way you honor a giver, and you don't honor a giver who's as loving as God by saying, oh, I'm indebted to you forever. I want to be your slave. Tell me what, it, no. But you do say, wow, wow. I, I really love you. What an unbelievable thing you've done for me. I'm yours. And that's what John envisions, right? So it's by doing, let's keep, let's keep reading. First John chapter three, verse 18 through 20. By this, that is by putting our deeds or putting our, matching our talk with our walk by actually obeying God in love. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So it's huge. Our walk is huge to gaining confidence in Christ and assurance in Christ. So the way to have confidence before God on the day of judgment is yes, trust exclusively in the work of Christ alone. But that work must be actualized in loving each other with a with a with a love that comes from God. Now, let me make it clear. The love that you are practicing and 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 it will be imperfect and flawless and can by no means be the grounds of God God's acceptance of you. Okay? But it is evidence that God has accepted you. It is evidence that you have been born of God. It is evidence that God abides in you and you abide in God. And as a result, it contributes to your assurance. There is an 
God has so tied assurance, the assurance of our salvation, the confidence that we have before him to two things, Christ's work for us and our response to that work, and they can't be separated biblically. One is the foundation. Without the work of Christ, there's no heaven, and we're not contributing to our acceptance with God by obeying him, but we are giving evidence that we are God's by obeying him. You make sense? So we're not talking about, well, there's Christ's work and he pays like 50% and then I've got to contribute my 50% of my obedience to get right with God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Christ's work, 100%, has secured a right standing with us before God, but that changes how people live who come into contact with it by faith. So when John says there is no fear in love, But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. His bigger, broader idea is, yes, God's love for you should cast out all fear. And you know how you can increase that confidence and assurance? Is by loving each other the way God has loved you. Because that's perfected love. That's the goal of my love is that the love of God would be overflowing and being completed in action, and that will cast out fear, definitively. So the way to boldness, the way to confidence, the way to fearlessness is to believe the love that God has for us and walk it out in obedient love. And this is clear throughout 1 John. As I've already shown you in several places, there is a constraint placed upon us when we are converted to Christ And this constraint is connected to the level of confidence that we enjoy before him. I want to show you three more verses, then we're going to move on. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, because I really want you to get this concept. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see the two things there? There are two things here that are combined to secure our cleansing from sin. One is, the, one is the blood of Christ. The other is walking in the light. So our confidence before God on the day of judgment is based finally and definitively on the blood of Christ as the atoning force that takes away our sins. And in no way does our walking in the light contribute to that. But notice, our walking in the light does contribute to the degree of enjoyable fellowship we have with God and one another. A certain kind of walk, not a walk that atones for sin, but because it confirms the genuineness that Jesus has cleansed us from our sin. And it's that kind of walk that gives us fellowship with one another, that increases our confidence before God. Okay? Two more verses, or two more passages. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. There it is, what he wants for us. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So how are you going to get that? Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So see, John says, you want to grow in confidence, obey God, practice righteousness, pursue Jesus, flee sin. The way to be sure that you're born of God and that you will have confidence when it comes to judgment is to abide in him and do what he calls you to do, which is pursue righteousness. One more passage, 
1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, there it is again. We're, you're loved by God. I love you. God loves you. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Great news! John says, we're God's children now. And in the future, I'm going to be like him. Cool. Can live however I want, right? Nope, not according to verse 3. Keep reading. Here's what you're supposed to do in the present, between the past and the future. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's what we do now. That's what we do now. We don't say, well, he's purified me. I'm going to be purified. I don't care about being pure right now. It's inconceivable to the Bible. If he has purified you and you will be purified, you know why you have that confidence? Because you're purifying yourself right now. You're getting after sanctification. Imperfectly, not flawlessly, of course, but really taking these, this word seriously. I'm not saying that's legalism. That's legalism. No, it isn't legalism. Legalism is cheap grace. It's a form of cheap grace. Maybe you haven't thought about it that way. But actually, antinomianism and legalism are the same, come from the same source. They come from the exact same source. I don't have time theologically to explain that to you right now. But the fact that you would just say, i got to keep the law with everything I am. It's all up to me. And I don't give a rip about the law. I don't care at all. Come from the same source. A lack of faith in God's, conf- uh, God's love and the gospel. So I, I hope that I've given you a little summary theology of, of confidence here in 1 John, of how we can arrive at a place of growing confidence and assurance before God. It's, it starts with Christ's obedience, first and foremost, for us, but then it leads out of that to our obedience. John Piper summar, summarizes all of it this way, and I'm going to quote him because I think he said it better than I could by far. When you love each other with a love that is more than just talk, When the love of God reaches its practical goal of action in your life, you will experience a deep and unshakable confidence before God. Much talk of love with few deeds of love destroys assurance. We've all experienced this from time to time. Our conscience condemns us because we think of deeds of love and don't do them. But if we put our money where our mouth is or our feet where our faith is, then we will have a deep sense of the reality of our own faith and will feel confident for the day of judgment because then we are acting the way that Jesus acted, end quote. So that's the point. So the first two ways to know that we have a relationship with God or that we are converted to Christ, verses 13 through 15. Number two, we are confident in Christ, verses 16 through 18. And now, final point, we are controlled by Christ, verses 19 through 21. By that, I mean we are constrained by Christ to love him and others as the primary goal of our lives. Let's look at verse 19 first. We love, we love because he first loved us. It's great news, right? But it's also a responsibility. We love because he first loved us. Our love flows from his love. If we abide in him and he is love, How can love not flow from us? That's John's way of thinking. Also, our love for others proves our love for God. Look at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he 
who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He says the way you want to know you love God, who you loving? Who you loving in the body of Christ? Because when you're loving people in the body of Christ, it is evidence that you love God. Because, well, John's like, but I love God. I don't ever go to church. This verse says that's wrong. People who say they love God and have no practical love for other Christians do not love God. Okay? Church is hard. It's messy. It's challenging. But we do it because we love God, don't we? We do it because we love God. And we love God's people. We'll stick in it. We'll stay after it even when it's difficult because we love God and we love his people. But John says, listen, you say you love God, but you're not deeply involved in the life of a community of believers. You, you hate your brother and you hate God. Because how can you say you love a God you can't see when you don't love people you can? That's John's argument. You see, there's no Christians that I'm sacrificially loving right now at all. Well, that should wake us up to the reality of do I love God? Do I love God? Because God's sacrificially loving Christians all the time. Right? It's kind of what he does. God is reigning from heaven right now, sacrificially loving his people. And he wants his people to be about that. And so... John says, listen, our love for others proves our love for God. And our love for others is not optional. Look at verse 20. And this commandment we have from him, it's not an option. It's a command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Must, 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 must. Not an option if we're going to be followers of Christ. Also in verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, says it again. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought, look at that word, big word of apostolic authority, ought to love one another. But notice how he's motivating us. He's not saying, listen, I'm going to come and give you an apostolic throat punch if you don't get after. It's like, I hope you've been watching UFC because I'm getting ready to take you out. No, he says, beloved, listen, I love you. God loves you. Can't you see the natural gospel response of all this? We ought to. We must. We can do nothing but love one another. Now, let me conclude the sermon with some practical examples and some questions and some things like that to help us flesh out this because, you know, we all, we all do really, really, we're, I mean, we're, we're acing the test at love in the abstract, aren't we? Don't we just kill it? I know I kill love in the abstract. When I read a verse like that and I say we're supposed to love one another, I say, yeah, probably doing all right. But when we actually press it down and flesh it out like we're trying to do in these sermons. So these come from uh, a book called Side by Side, which is by Ed Welch. He's a Christian counselor. And the the book's goal is to help Christians love one another. And so here's here's some of his counsel. I've got seven of them. And these are practical ways to love. Number one, and none of these are super spiritual either. They can be done by every Holy Spirit and dwelt believer. Number one, talk to people. Get to know them and be a good listener. There's the path to love right there. Talking to people, getting to know him, getting to know him, and being a good listener. 
Number two, care more about each other than just what's on the surface. Don't just ask about the test results and the medication and the next doctor's visit. We must be willing to talk about fears and worries and doubts and joys and hopes and disappointments. Real love means getting into real problems. Most people, however, including most of us, prefer to talk about our circumstantial problems, but those are not our real problems. So if we're going to love one another, we have to deal humbly with the real problems. Number three, if you notice something good, tell each other. Tell each other. Have you noticed the Spirit's fruit in someone's life? Write them a note. Send them a text. Tell them what you're thankful for. Number four, ask for stories. People are fascinating. They're fascinating. We are fascinating. We have histories. And shame on us. We have histories that some of us know nothing about. Nothing about. And you know what? Those histories are his story. Those are histories that God has written. And we should care to know what God has written. So draw each other out. How'd you become a Christian? What drew you to your line of work? Tell me about your kids. How'd the two of you meet? What were your traditions around the holidays? How are you going to celebrate Thanksgiving, Christmas? One of the greatest gifts that we can give to each other in the body of Christ is the gift of curiosity. Number five, practice a long suffering. A long suffering. Suffering alongside each other. Don't let suffering scare you away. That's when others need you the most. Don't lecture. Don't push them with Bible quotations. Tell them you're sorry. Love them, pray with them, and take the initiative to help. Number six, follow up. Pray with each other, but also ask them how things are going a week later, a month later, two months later, six months later, 10 years later. Pray with each other in a time of crisis or pain, but also circle back and reassure them that you're still praying and ask how they're doing. Number seven, have the courage to confront. Love may cover a multitude of sins, but it does not overlook every sin for all time. Sin is one of the main things that we all have in common, so let's not be afraid to talk about it. We all have it even the pastor and preacher and every other one of your elders. We've got sin. Anybody believe that? Say amen. Amen. All right. Let's not act like it's some sort of like wicked ghost that just crept out of the closet when we see it in one another. Whoa! I thought you were glorified. Sorry. So, some questions in conclusion. When you contemplate the example of Christ's life of love, does your heart fill with longings to be like him? And do you make firm resolves to go after the unloving attitudes and behaviors in your life? Hope we all do. When you fail in a resolve to love, does it grieve you and bring you broken to the cross, pleading for forgiveness and seeking new strength to love again? And is the current pattern of your life to live for the eternal good of other people, or are your thoughts and dreams and daily choices generally aimed at merely making ourselves comfortable? Scotty Smith, and I'm going to conclude with this. Scotty Smith describes in a prayer this week, as I was preparing this sermon, I get inboxed his prayers 
in my email every day. And so he leads me in prayer every day of my life. And I appreciate him. Uh, he wrote a prayer this week called, What Does Loving Well Look Like? And I thought, well, this is a word from God for me. And uh, he says the following, and we'll pray it with our eyes open. Father, help us love well when we'd rather be defensive, right, and remain a bit smug. Help us love well when we're tired, frustrated, and sleep-deprived. Help us love well when we're in the presence of the broken, weak, poor, and homeless. Help us love well when it's time to deal with situations at work, in a friendship, or in our family, but we'd rather just avoid it and wish it would go away. Help us love well when our spouse or child needs to talk, but we dread the conversation. Help us love well in the presence of people who have brought harm to our hearts. Help us love well in a culture of political diatribe, divisive personalities, and unfiltered harshness. Help us love well when our takeout order is wrong, when our UPS delivery is late or our guests show up early. Help us love well, not just use kindness or niceness to get something from them. Help us love well when those we're with don't care diddly squat about Jesus, the gospel, or anything eternal. Help us love well when we don't have control over people, situations, or outcomes, but would really love to. So may God help us, brothers and sisters. Having been converted to Christ and having been made confident in Christ, may we be controlled by Christ. May we love because he first loved us. Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, thank you again for the wonderful news this morning that we've gotten to hear about you sending your son to be the savior of the world. Thank you that we readily confess as your sons and daughters here this morning, we readily confess that we belong to you and that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of the world. We thank you that you have given him up for us, for our sins and for our salvation that you spared no expense in purchasing us. May we spare no expense in our response to you. We know that we will never love you, at least even in a glorified state, we will never love you with the divine love with which you love us. But God, how sorry we are that, that, our, that our love for you is still so, what well, we feel like, so handicapped it just feels like it's limping along. Lord, would you fill us afresh with a realization of your love? Holy Spirit, as we prayed last week, shed abroad again your love for us in our hearts so that we would grasp the height and width and breadth and depth of the love of God in Christ and know this love that surpasses knowledge. Lord, cause the penny to drop in the in the in the in the vending machine of our own hearts. So we've got it in there. It's in there. It's stuck. Shake it, God. Cause the gospel to drop in our lives. Cause us to get it at a deeper, more profound level so that our lives are shaped and our loves are formed and we are created again and renewed again after the image and likeness of our God as we thought about in one of our classes this morning. So God, lead us on. Thank you for your love. As we sing about it now, transform us more into being the kind of loving people that we, you would have us to be. Thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.
others too. Thanks, Lord.